0: Welcome to Shanghai John, a raw and lively regular debate about China tech, advertising, creativity, platforms, and the intersection of it all. Join us each session for timely and relevant discussions on all things China marketing. We'll be joined by an entire spectrum of China experts. And you can learn more about Shanghai John on our website, johnstation.com. Coming to you directly from the city of Shanghai I'm Bryce Witwam.
1: And I'm Ali Kazmi.
0: And Ali, we'd like to thank everyone for their continued support. If you like the show, share with your friends, or better yet, give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Making this podcast is pure love and not profit, and we actually pay a lot of money to platforms to be able to get this out so if you could help us you can donate to patreon.com p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash shanghai john and if you donate you can get some really cool merchandise so this is the final episode of our season one 32 episodes Ali, and we hit the 125,000 download mark so in order to make this show Extra special. We thought we'd go back and look at the back end and see which show got the highest amount of downloads from our first season, and the winner of that is Julian Labka. He is the founder of Inner Chapter, and his episode was about evolving from KOLs to Chinese influencer groups. Julian's episode topped the charts with over seven thousand downloads. So congratulations to Julian. But more importantly, we thought we'd have Julian back on the show, given it's our last episode. So uh, if you didn't listen to Julian's episode, please do so. I will leave a link in the show notes and you can click and listen to it. Today, we're going to talk about Julian's predictions for 2023, what he's been up to and why this year, 2022, has been so good for him. So Julian, again, welcome to the show. Thanks for being back. And we really appreciate you being on the show.
2: Well, thanks for having me again. It's, uh, it's quite the honor, and uh, hopefully we can make part two even better. How are things these days? Well, kind of getting to the end of the year, uh, it's certainly been a very long, long year. We've had, uh, it was actually our, our best year commercially, but as, you know, with, with various lockdowns, it's definitely taken quite a bit of toll mentally and emotionally on, on the whole team. So actually, we're, uh, we're looking forward to start uh, 2023 fresh, and hope both China and um, and the world will take on a bit more of a positive direction to how we're ending things this year.
0: And that's really great news. Could you tell us a little bit about why you think this year was so successful? We'd obviously like to attribute that to the podcast if we possibly could, but I know that's a bit of a stretch. Um, maybe you could talk about why your influencer programs and your services to companies has taken off so much in this year. We've had previous guests within the marketing field who've actually told us that they haven't done well this year. So what do you attribute to success?
2: A couple of things. It's quite interesting how usually during times of great uncertainty, a lot of clients want to know what what do we do next? How can we predict the future? Now, Unfortunately, we can't quite predict the future. We don't have a whole bunch of crystal balls lying around in the in the office. What we have been doing a lot a lot of is scenario planning types of projects where clients will ask us, "Hey, can you can you help us come up with three, four, five different routes to market, different ways of of growth that perhaps aren't necessarily what what they've been used to developing in in the past i think we've you know we've seen um, a huge acceleration in a lot of the the companies that we work with looking at growth not from a marketing point of view not from a communication point of view but actually looking to really launch as many products as they can online and do the packaging get the packaging get the benefits to actually do a lot of the heavy lifting in terms of the branding so it's uh it's interesting because a lot of these Western brands are, are starting to actually adopt some of the tactics that perhaps Korean brands and even Chinese brands have been adopting in the past, which is get a lot of products out, do the emotional comps through, through products. So that's been a huge, a huge shift. And a lot of those types of projects actually has been driving a lot of our growth this year.
1: I, I'm just curious, are we talking about cosmetic brands or what kind of brands are we talking about?
2: All across the spectrum. So we don't necessarily have a specialism in a particular Industry. So this spans from packaged uh, foods companies that are looking to um, to come up with with new offers. But definitely, we still do a, a fair bit in uh, skincare, makeup, but also we're seeing this with brands that focus on on kids' education and uh, and entertainment. Everybody's trying to figure out, you know, how can we gain market share? Often by tapping into you know new demographics, by tapping into Lower tier cities, and you're doing that through um, through product, uh, through product innovation and service innovation. So it's been uh, it's been really interesting for us that we've we've really made made a pretty big, not switch, but we've continued to evolve the business to one which is from marketing and calm strategy to one we're actually coming up with new new products um and that's actually forced us to you know start thinking about different types of output whether we bring in uh prototype ideas whether we're you know we're sort of starting to to be asked to get mocked up pack pack ideas and getting into you know speaking with people on the sourcing side on the logistic sides of, of clients so that we can really come up with um with things that are are commercially tangible
1: i think advertising companies and groups in general there's a lot less money going into media and advertising. And I wonder if that spend is moving into product, product development and the business of um, the company versus the marketing. Do you think that's what's happening? I don't know. That's a, that's an open question to both Bryce and Julian.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think part, part of it as well is, is a lot of the growth is, you know, it's coming in from, from perhaps demographics that are also a bit more difficult to reach across traditional media. So, one of the things that we've we've been, if there was ever a theme for this year in terms of types of briefs, it's it's very much been trying to reach the 55, 60 plus year old demographic. Um, China's very is a, is an old country, not through its sort of thousands years of history, but it's it's genuinely an old um, country. I think uh, Shanghai now has uh, close to 20, 26, 27 percent of its population is 65 plus. And what, what a lot of marketers are, are realizing is, you know, hold on a second, these people that are just about to retire, they've been working for the last 20 years. So they've actually reaped a lot of the, um, the good fortunes that have come with two decades of, of growth. And for the first time ever in Chinese history, we're seeing, you know, this older cohort coming into retirement, having been used to actually living a bit of a life of luxury and having quite a bit of disposable income so this is going to fuel a lot of the growth for for a lot of companies but to reach them you're you know you are probably looking at a slightly different strategy that moves away perhaps from the you know traditional social media platforms but even you know from the traditional um big cctv and sort of tv groups
0: i think to answer your question ali that brands have moved definitely away from pure media advertising if you think about everything's about influencer marketing, then a lot of your buzz and excitement will be around product innovation. And that is primarily driving this model of pushing out new and innovative stuff as fast as possible.
2: Yeah, that's right. And even when you look at it from, you know, from some of these new new demographics, I think what's, you know, what's quite interesting is the way that people think about purchasing is often they will type in you know a key category. And sure perhaps you're starting off with, oh, I'd love to buy, you know, X big category leader brand. But once you type in your product category into JD or or tmall you're essentially met with hundreds and hundreds of options. And often what you know what it comes down to is, you know, how does the packaging look? How does the price look increasingly as we're you know leading or are moving into what's most likely going to be a, a recession. I mean, we're probably in a recession already, uh, but a lot of these other factors as well start to, to influence how people are choosing choosing products. So actually, we've, we've also been getting quite a lot of, um, or we've been having a lot of discussions around, you know, can you actually make an ingredient can, uh, into a brand equity? You know, which is quite an interesting question when you're thinking about it from a, you know, skincare point of view, from a, a food point of view, can you actually own a type of ingredient that actually can inform your brand positioning, but can also elevate perhaps or underpin your, your brand positioning. So it's, uh, it's, it's creating emotions through the very sort of rational intrinsics of a, of a product, which is, uh, you know, flipping how communications have been traditionally thought
1: of. That's awesome, Julian. I, I wonder then, so business has been good, you're still in the business of insights. And just going back to something that you mentioned last time, you talked about how house visits and home visits are very important in capturing those insights. Um, how much of that have you been doing, given that now we're in COVID season, and it's been really restrictive movement of people around the city? How have you gotten around that um, for, for Insights Generation?
2: That's been a fun one to address for us this year. It's it's definitely created you know some frustrations in terms of Projects being postponed indefinitely. I mean, we still have one one project that we won in in April, and we're still waiting to to be able to go in to, to be able to go in field uh, because of COVID issues. But the way that we've you know that we've gotten past that, a, a couple of things. One is you know for some clients that we've been conducting quite a where we have you know longstanding relationships. We've we've set up many many inner chapters across different cities so we were we were doing this project around smart cities up in up in Tianjin and we essentially sent out uh half a dozen of our of our team to essentially live in Tianjin for a shorter amount of time so you kind of end up doing field and you do a lot of the analysis and the writing in one in one city so you end up you know perhaps renting uh, a little villa or you sort of end up setting up a, a half-permanent um, space in, in some of these cities. You know, that's one way that logis- logistically we've managed to, um, to move away from, from some of these challenges. I mean, a couple of other, you know, ways that we've, that we've mitigated things is we've got an extremely visually literate population, especially when, you know, perhaps we're doing things around fitness, sports, fashion. It's actually increasingly easier to, to select folks that are very capable of presenting in front of a camera that know how to use cameras um, just because people do it every day through their moments a lot of people have you know taken up hobbies through photography and so sometimes we'll, the types of consumers that will um, that will bring in are actually those that are very visually literate and we'll get them to do self-documentaries um, so it's thinking about you know recruiting the right type of people that you know have that sort of visual those visual sensitivities and, you know, therefore they can become little field field reporters for you. They do a, a lot of the visual captures and then you have, you know, extended chats online with them. So that's, you know, another way that we've we've done it. I think the last, last way that we've done it, I think that very much speaks to what we were talking about before around how the product becomes your positioning how the product becomes your you know your advert we've spent a lot of time going into field with coming up with hypotheses and actually making tangible those hypotheses through specific products so to give you an example if we're you know if we're being asked to to come up with a new snacking brand for example around i don't know chocolate or chips or sort of spiciness we would literally scour the internet for different sensorial cues different types of say chocolates and sort of send a whole bunch of stuff to to people um, and we're then trying things a bit live with them so you're sort of trying to spur some of these conversations with stimuli that, that can sort of mimic or recreate certain contexts so it's it's tricky but we we're starting to find ways ways around and in Shanghai actually it's been we've actually been okay to to continue to
0: do some of the more ethnographic based work and could you elaborate on the Tangine thing? I, I without naming the, the product or the category? maybe you could tell me what the category is. I'm very curious about that. Actually placing people within the the market. What was the what was the objective of the of the exercise and what were you hoping to get out of it? You mentioned that you had all these different online type of applications that you can do. Uh what made the Tangine one special? Was it an ethnographic type of study or was it something different?
2: Yeah, it was a super interesting study. So this was on behalf of a property developer that was looking to understand what does the notion of community mean? How do people form community? And so this was to inform how they might be thinking about uh, hard and soft infrastructure that was going to be developed in this, in this smart city. And so for us to understand the notion of community, you, you just you generally just have to be in that community and spend a good amount of time with people. So for that, it was a true ethnographic approach where we would spend, you know, two, three days with one person and shadow them. So see where they went shopping, where, you know, leisure happened, how they would interact with uh, not just their neighbors, but uh, but also family members, to really to really get to grips with uh, how do people define community? What what are some dimensions to community that perhaps are are missing um, within that um, within that development? Um, and it's been you know things that unless you unless you go there, you'd never be able to you know to find out. I mean, one of the you know one of the things that. Um, not just through through this project, but I think in in general, what people are looking for from brands is to actually give them some some form of coping mechanism with all of the changes that have been happening in in China, and you know, which have been you know either amplified or sort of brought uh, or made worse through you know through COVID COVID lockdown. So there, we spent a lot of time discussing how can you actually create um, the infrastructure for better mental health for you know recreating certain connections within you know within your your communities and that's something that you know at the onset of the brief perhaps we weren't necessarily um thinking about we were coming at it much more from a uh how do you curate different different spaces what are the uh, the services or what are you know certain design elements or path or wayfinding that you could be thinking about but you know after spending some um extended time in those communities, some of those insights starts to, to come out pretty pretty vividly.
0: And two weeks ago, we had Jason Yu from Cantar Word Panel on the show, and he talked about some of the new within the new normal. And this is very much from a quantitative perspective. So I'm kind of interested if you're finding similar trends on the qualitative side. He talked about things regarding very much a post-COVID kind of environment where brands that embrace things like cure anxiety or happy indoor lifestyle, where people are looking for, you know, ways to to try to relieve health anxiety issues, creating new everyday rituals. These products evolve from the fact that people are spending a lot more time at home. Do you see these brands to to show continued growth in China into 2023? Or do you think that it's a short-term thing that might lessen as as the COVID restrictions start to decrease, which I think everyone's expecting will happen?
2: Yeah, it's a really good question. And I think a lot of these, you know, shifts that we're, that we're seeing during COVID are, are actually perhaps not necessarily shifts, but they're just things have been, past trends are being sped up. Um, so even as we were, we were just recently looking at, well, last week we were looking at what are some of the fastest growing categories during 11-11. And, you know, the top three were toys. So things like, you know, Bandai, Lego, Pop Mart, pet, uh, pet food, and sportswear. So these, you know, these three, you know, categories there, there's definitely a, the connecting thread that we saw is that they all offer this, uh, you know, these little moments of disconnection, these little moments of personal sort of well well-being um and emotional downtime if if you will now for some of these things like you know sportswear and pets this is something that you know, we we were seeing quite a bit of growth even before the pan, the pandemic, where there has been quite a bit of soul searching that's been happening in, in China in terms of, you know, what does you know hyper consumption mean? Does it actually make me make me happy? So some of these some of these trends that he was talking about, we we definitely see that see that as well. And they will only continue to to speed up. I think from a you know, from a branding point of view, I think that that's where it becomes quite quite interesting because not everybody can offer A bit of mental wellness and and you know emotional support. I think what people will will need are much more tangible coping mechanisms. So if we're you know, there's been a lot of talk about you know brand purpose and 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 often it's been done through you know beautiful films and sort of touching touching stories. I think people will will want and expect a lot a lot more from from brands. A good example is you know when when you look at the unemployment rates coming from uh, for fresh grads, I think it's now up to almost 20, 20 plus percent, right? Doing a nice feel good film around for, uh, for fresh grads isn't going to help them get jobs. So you know some of the conversations that we're having with our clients, if you're in say, fashion or if you're in makeup, why don't you create, why don't you start a, a program for fresh grads where you're actually training them how to do great interviews. People have no clue how to interview. In in China, uh, we always have a running joke that if we if we interview an American, we always sort of bring them a couple of notches down because everybody's so they just know what to say during during an interview, whereas actually in in China. Um, we always want to bring people a couple of notches up because we know that they've got some great ideas, but they don't really know how to present themselves. So if you're, you know, if you're a brand, you know, help people with training around uh, job interviews, you know, teach them how to dress properly, teach them how to, you know, how to do the right, you know, the right makeup. So I think there is trying to build some of that infrastructure that uh, where there's a transfer of, of skills. I think that that's something when, if brands can do that and if, you know, for some categories where that can happen, I think that's much more powerful than tiptoeing around notions of, you know, wellness and sort of um, emotional support, which is obviously important, but I think there's, you know, potentially
0: uh, much more interesting things that brands can, can do. Taking more proactive means of trying to improve people's lifestyle instead of just taking this cerebral time to yourself moment in your home uh, in your little corner uh, in the living room kind of kind of message, I guess right?
2: Exactly. I mean even and I'm sure that you know you you get this uh, quite a bit, but everything around you know the metaverse, people are constantly asking us about you know what do you do with that and you're like, uh, okay, I mean what is what does the metaverse even even mean? Does anybody know what it what it means it's 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 sort of everything and um, and nothing. You know one of the things when we've been speaking with some um, pharma pharma brands, and, you know, one thing that the metaverse is potentially really, really great at is that it, it can act as a great teaching. Despite saying mental wellness isn't, isn't important, I'm not going to say this is the best thing ever for, for the metaverse, but it's fine to, to contradict oneself, right? This is, this is, this is China after all. Um, all. All sides are, all opinions kind of, uh, all diverse opinions are essentially kind of have a kernel of truth to them. You know, there's a, there's a huge lack of, of therapists in, in China. There's still quite a lot of taboos. That, that exists. I mean, everything from, you know, se- sexual harassment through to single moms sort of uh, struggling and just the tremendous pressures that are put onto to white-collar workers. Um, we've seen, you know, a lot of brands trying to address that through, through communications. And that's great because it, you know, it raises awareness. But, you know, to, get, to bring it back to the metaverse, you know, if you do create these safe, safe spaces where people can have those those conversations and kind of seek, uh, you know, seek help and sort of seek, um, create those sort of positive feedback loops, then, again, creating the infrastructure for, for that to happen is something that's, um, that's tremendously important. And um, I think it would create, you know, word of, word of mouth that's, uh, you know, that goes beyond, uh, beyond the product, but that, you know, creates a, creates a tremendous amount of, of goodwill. And I think generating goodwill is, is going to be key for For a lot of brands people are getting quite quite tired of being told to you know consume the next you know the next thing when they've got less and less money in their in their pockets at the end of every month
0: yeah good point um given that this is the end of the year so naturally we're always looking for predictions about what's going to happen in 2023 and ali pulled this out actually from the china national bureau of statistics They've recently published uh, the most recent consumer confidence numbers. And we know that Chinese are emphatically optimistic all the time, except for now, except for 2022. So the Consumer Confidence Index is based on a survey of about 700 people and between 15 years old and over, about from 20 cities. And uh, since March of this year, it's been around 90, uh, 87 right now. Uh, Normally, it's up in the 120 range. 200, by the way, is extreme optimism, and extreme pessimism is zero. So, right now, it's kind of around 87. So, as we look towards Next year, are you more positive or less positive about 2023? And could you add a bit of color of what's driving consumers to feel this way? Ouch!
2: That's a that's a good question. Very uh, quite a difficult question. There's a lot of firsts for for Chinese, right? So there's a potential recession. Then there's been the lockdown that has you know shaken people up quite you know quite quite dramatically. For something like the lockdown, that was a pretty intense, you know, two, three months of just emotionally coping with, you know, with things. Um, Now, after that's gone, what's been, you know, what's been interesting is people have kind of forgotten about it relatively quickly, but now are dealing with an uncertainty of another lockdown. So the the reason I'm, I'm bringing this up is that people will only start to feel more positive once there's more clarity around some of these, these policies, because that's the one thing that really brings down optim- um, optimism. You know, if people were told, well, listen, we're, we've got six more months of this, and after that, people can, can travel abroad and you can go to Thailand, and you can go out and, you know, explore the world. Or you can just even, you know, if you're family and if you've got kids in in China, you, you kind of can't really travel. So even if it's, you know, going to, to Yunnan or just, you know, taking time to explore um, uh, a world that's outside of your, your compound, I think all of that is actually in, in, in some ways leading to a much more pessimistic attitude. Because if we think about the last, you know, five to ten years, one of the things that was driving a lot of a lot of optimism actually not just optimism but just this unbridled positivity is that every year you'd have new experiences that would be coming into your city you'd be able to discover new lifestyles and you know you would do that either through the infrastructure that was being built in your city or because you were just free to to travel and to learn from other cities and to learn from other countries and to learn from other you know ways that you know, cities would would structure themselves. And once you cut away that element of, of learning, that's when people start to get, you know, quite... Not, not worried, but they go, well, okay, if I don't have any... If I have less and less money and I can't learn and I can't discover... New things because I'm kind of stuck at home. Then I think that's where you're where you're seeing a lot of uh, a lot of that pessimism come through. So to try and attempt to <laughs> to answer that that question, I, I, I think optimism will 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 start creeping back up once the borders start to open up again. I think that would you know that would honestly act as a really nice pressure valve because once people can you know can start moving abroad again, I think that's really important for for people. And actually, we're we're even seeing this. Quite interestingly, from from our own clients, who you know, who are asking us to bring in a lot of inspiration and thinking from from outside of from outside of China. There, there's a real sort of curiosity and sort of a, a bit of an understanding that you know, the, the last three years we've we've really been cut off from from the rest from the rest of the world. And I think that that's been something that, again, just thinking about the last decade plus, a lot of that optimism and that just sort of lust for life what's coming from, you know, this, this, this amazing open-mindedness that people have here about, you know, learning about things outside of, of China. They may disagree with how things outside of, of China operate, and that's, and that's, you know, totally fine, but I think it's having that constant influx of, of inspiration is, is, is really important. So I'm cautiously optimistic. I'm cautiously optimistic that things are trending the, um, the right way and that, um, that confidence index will will starts
0: to, to creep back, back up next year. I think sometimes it's good to have a reset as well. And the whole time that I lived in China was all about going up and never going up and then down and then up again and then down again. I think that in Western economies we have resets and currently we're having one now. These are great opportunities for people to start businesses. These are great opportunities to make investments I mean, I can't tell you how many times at WPP quoting the average employee churn rate around forty percent. That in a, in a normal year, forty percent of your staff will leave uh, in twelve months. I'm picking on WPP. It's IPG is exactly the same, probably worse. Fact is that people now might stay in a job longer. Uh, it enable businesses to have more flexibility. And believe me, running an, a company where you have upwards of 35 to 40% staff churn every year is a nightmare. So maybe there's some good things that will come out of this. And it's possible that this might be a good reset for China, uh, focusing on the important things, make reasonable investments. Property prices hopefully will go down, make property more affordable for middle-class citizens. Right, what, what do you think, Ali? What's your, op- what's your take on 2023? Do you think the index will go up?
1: Yeah, no, I've got I've got lots of thoughts, but uh, but I mean on the property thing, I think the property I I, I I can't I saw a statistic the other day, but I think the property prices have gone down two percent or something, um, and I think it's been the first time in I don't know over a decade where Shanghai property prices have actually gone down versus go up versus the last year versus the last quarter. Um, so I, and I think and I think China, I think consumer confidence in general is attached to. As as I think, you know, both yourselves and and, and Julian have mentioned is attached to government confidence confidence in in, 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 in governance, and uh, and over the last um, what twenty years, right? Um, you know, GDP growth has been double digit, and and everyone has benefited from that growth. And China's never seen, at least, you know, this population, young people today have never seen. And you have to remember that people in China were born or, you know, most people my age, your age, our age were born in poverty or, you know, lower middle class, very simple lives. And, and it's their kids that are born in, in great luxury by comparison. And I'm not saying all of China, and I think there's a lot of people out there that are going to challenge me on my response. But I think by and large, major cities, urban China, you know, a lot of young people have never seen hard times or hardship. And even if it isn't, don't want to draw comparison to other parts of the world that are still developing. But but I think it's it's difficult for, for young people that come out of college and, you know, before when you were halfway through college, you already had a guaranteed job and now you don't
0: at least three off three to four offers you know uh, i mean you for know sure. was i know we're talking to my students and they're like oh uh you know a few years ago we had choices between unilever l'oreal coke they all had job offers now none of those places are are looking for new hires
1: but i think it's a psychological impact that's driving this this negative confidence Right so there is there's covid the macro environment sort of condition between US and China that's also affecting general confidence I think there's keen interest at least from the government side to redistribute wealth in a more you know egalitarian more effective way and so there's, you know, there's pockets of society that, that are not benefiting, but there's also other pockets of society that will benefit from from some of these policies. I think 2024, I think we're going to be back, back to normal 2024 and back to normal, but it's going to be organized. It's going to be contained, but it's going to be, you know, like Xi Jinping calls it real economy and real growth. Absent of speculation, good stuff, good industry, manufacturing, people doing, you know, hard work. I think that's what he wants. It makes a lot of sense to me.
2: I mean, one thing that you've mentioned actually, because there is a bit of an infrastructural element to this as well. Um, and I, I was actually recently looking at some of the uh, what Japan went through um, after the uh, things went, the bubble burst in in the late 90s. And actually, we've uh, Japan's always been a bit of a mom and mom and pop shop economy. And actually, after the bubble uh, burst, we we saw that a lot of people ended up actually opening up their own become becoming self-employed and sort of freelancers i think that's one one part of the labor market here that's you know that i would actually see as being able to employ a lot of a lot of people but actually if you if you link it with the hukou system social benefits it's actually very difficult to be legally self-employed and actually not be completely disconnected from a lot of the you know the social benefits that um that you can sort of tap into only if you're employed by, you know, by a big company. And we're actually seeing a lot of people that are, I mean, sure, they're, they're coming from a sort of, you know, middle class, upper middle class background, but, you know, they're moving to the countryside and starting their own little tea brand or, you know, they're, 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 they're essentially doing, you know, it is the real economy in that they're becoming carpenters or, you know, at one point, a lot of people are moving to Jingdezhen and starting their, uh, pottery brands. You sort of see a lot of these, you know, disaffected middle class white-collar folks that, you know, have a passion and actually feel, you know what, if I can monetize it and if I can monetize it by moving to a smaller city where I don't have much of an outlay in, in expenses, e-com and, and you know logistics in China are, are so cheap and so well developed that, you know, you can ostensibly run your, your own business. But you know those people what they're what they're finding is sure, they you know they might be able to do that. but then there's a quick realization that if you're disconnected, again, from all of these social benefits, how do people pay taxes? I mean, those are just very basic infrastructural disconnects that currently exist in the in the legal framework of of China. I think if you'd get that fixed, then I think that would that would help, wasn't it? I now forget maybe the two of you can um, can remind me of that was of what it was called, but I remember like three or four years back, or during actually 2020, where there was that, that push from the government to get people to, to start their own, their own businesses. And after that, it was, after it was announced, we, you started seeing loads of people on the sort of sides of streets. And a lot of folks, I think, would be, you know, interested in, in, in perhaps finding a different pathway to, you know, to generating
0: their, their own income. So I think that, that's something that'll be interesting to watch. I don't know, I'm not as optimistic as you guys. I think that the challenge will be if you're going to build this this model of economic prosperity built on greater equal income, which I agree, China has some of the greatest disparity between upper and lower incomes in the world. It's not going to be done through state-owned enterprises. It is, it's proven over and over again in China these models are inefficient.
1: I kind of disagree. For me, it isn't planned economy. For me, it is reducing elements of speculation in the Chinese economy. And, like, if you put that into context, there's, you know, like... And I don't have a stat in front of me right now. But but if you look at the number of people that are wealthy or, you know, extremely rich versus people that live in rural China that don't have access to healthcare because it's being monopolized by people that live in tier one cities or tier two cities, then there is going to be parts of society that are going to feel that, they're, that they are disadvantaged because they live in rural China, because they don't have access to jobs, because, you know, even if they have to pay tax, they, you know, they don't get the benefits of people that live in tier one cities do. So, you know, is there infrastructure that connects lower tier cities with um, tier one and you know tier one cities absolutely so so trade and you know trade and commerce that between lower and upper tier cities completely exist do they have electricity do they have access to you know shelter education totally but you know it's 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 what's happening and it's quite prevalent at least in in my part of the world, where there's a there's a strata of society that ends up going to the best universities that can send their children abroad, that have access to healthcare, that, you know, this is all part of nation building and making sure that there's equal access, you know, that I can totally understand as being very important.
2: To touch upon, you know, what you said, Ali, as well, I think there is a need for diversification. So, I mean, you've got what, like 35% of the economy is, you know, real estate, uh, adjacent to sort of real estate and real estate adjacent, right, and then you've got another. I think it was like seventeen, eighteen percent of the economy is you know foreign direct investment, and that's you know these two during COVID are have you know completely dropped off. So you're you know you've been sort of too too reliant on a couple of key sectors, and you know you you need to loosen up some of these regulatory uh, shackles that that you've placed, which you know is, is easier is easier said than done when you've got. You know, provinces have their own targets to, you know, to meet, and sort of Beijing has, you know, has, has sometimes very, very different ones. But, um, you know, I think it is, it is looking at, you know, how, how can we diversify the the economy? What are you know What are the kinds of industries that we can actually invest in so that um, we can move away from, you know, from these big white elef- white elephant type of um, infrastructural projects i mean not not too dissimilar to what happened again to go back to the japan you know example where at one point they were building you know high-speed trains going from nowhere to nowhere fast i mean that's not really going to help your you know your economy in the in the long run um, and then you get into all sorts of you know bigger issues around you know education and we're you know we're, we're seeing this and we're kind of seeing this actually quite interestingly everywhere in the in the world where there is there is a completely closing off of of minds and of and of opinions uh, i mean in china we kind of all know the the situation here but it's you know it's happening as well in you know in places like the u.s where loads of books are now being banned for being you know either too liberal or not liberal enough i think there's a you know, the, the the world needs more more diversity of thought, and need you know more spaces where some of those ideas can be exchanged. I'm sort of a big, big, big believer in in that. And once you get smart people together to discuss freely, usually you come up with you know some interesting um, routes to to trial. Um, and that's something that, in the context of of this market, that's going to be the most difficult one to um, for the government to to let go of. But I think it is one that's you know that is quite quite crucial, um, because you are just not going to be able to, to grow through, you know, building lower end, you know, manufacturing or, you know, or property and, and sort of big infrastructure projects. But, but, you know, they've, they've been figuring things out for the last two, two decades. So I'm you know, I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic that, uh, the next decade will be, um, you know they'll be able to take that next step
1: so julian i mean this year has been really difficult for a lot of companies next year might also be equally challenging for advertising media and the general marketing community and in our business whenever you do campaigns and you do advertising a lot of times those insights that help set up brands come from areas or territories of positivity. And in China, a lot of times it's just—it's I guess it's just very easy to, to fall back on on sources of insight that are negative. And in this case, being COVID or spending too much time at home or some of the challenges that come with staying under lockdown. How can you, as a marketer, as an insights generation, what recommendation do you have for advertisers and the marketing community to kind of look at the brighter side of things, if they're if that's possible? and just and just give people you know opportunity to think positively about how they should approach their marketing and their advertising,
2: yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, it also goes gets into what is the role of of brands to to begin with, right? Like are we there we've kind of spent a good five years talking about you know brand purpose, brand purpose, and how there was this you know brands were meant to almost replace elements of religion or sort of other value value systems and sort of act as support networks as families did, did in the past. You know, though, those sort of views on should brands even be getting into this? I'd, I'd kind of half question that maybe. Um, through messaging or, you know, through communications, either saying, oh, well, you know, here, here's a nice little positive film that we've made or, you know, you can offer a bit of an escapism through, you know, through various activations. I mean, all of that, sure, you can, you can do that and it does strike a, a more positive Tone, But I'm just not sure that that's, I mean, it depends on the, on the brand that, you know, that you're sort of dealing with. But I, I think, again, brands can go much, much further. And, and, and there, maybe it's less about whether it's positive or, or, or mirroring, you know, negativity and sort of, you know, showcasing a bit of empathy. Maybe it's none of that. Maybe it's, you know, is, is there an opportunity and maybe creating you know better better connections and you know going back to that idea of sharing sharing skills sharing inspirations and whether they're you know coming from a positive or from a negative place i think it's in engendering in, you know those discussions and sort of opening people's you know people's minds is is something that that perhaps is creates a much bigger role for for brands in the, in the coming years, especially, you know, given between lockdowns, whether in your own compound or just not being able to, you know, to travel to another city, to another province or to another, another country. I'd, I'd kind of look at it as, you know, if, if brands can sort of connect uh, people of sort of diverse mindsets, of sort of diverse, uh, you know, backgrounds and engender those conversations, I think that's where a lot of richness comes in. You know, especially as we're, I think we're going to start to see a bit of pushback against you know the whole KOL economy and sort of you know the, a bit of the the vacuity and of of you know what happened in the in the 2010s where everything was about you know super super sort of you know glitzy hyper saturated design and sort of people taking photos and that's all of that is great when when times are good and you know money keeps on you know coming in but i think we'll as we'll see you know people sort of re, you know reflect on on what to do next i think a lot of that that sort of shiny Shiny newness of the of the KOL economy will will probably lose a little bit of its appeal, and people will want to sort of um, have those um, those those deeper connections. And I think that's where you know some of those infrastructures um, that brands can create would be you know could be more more interesting.
1: Are we ready for the A B test? Absolutely, we're totally ready for the test. Um, <laughs> you you know how this goes. I'm just gonna. Give you both those options, and then you pick whatever comes, uh, whatever's first in mind. Um, twenty twenty three or twenty twenty four. Twenty three. Seven plus two or five plus three. That
2: feels like a trick, a trick math question. Definitely five. Five plus three is eight, right? Seven plus two nine. Why would you ever go for seven plus two? Five plus
1: three. Five plus three. Insights or innovation? Uh,
2: innovation for sure. I mean, insights leads to innovation. So innovation. Growth or efficiency neither let's let's all clock out somewhere on a on a beach um uh efficiency tiger or rabbit rabbit
1: the u.s or china
2: oh, i gotta go for china that's why you know home my, it's my home china you know i uh, had you put in canada versus china i probably would have to properly think about it but um china you're going for china excellent
1: real estate or industry
2: industry for sure
1: buy or sell
2: Buy. I mean, I've been nothing but positive and optimistic on, you know, so you got to go buying and keep keep keeping up that mindset. Buy everything.
1: Alibaba or Amazon?
2: Alibaba. Largely cuz I hate Jeff Be- Bezos. He's just, yeah, don't get me started on him. And Alibaba's quite un- under undervalued as well, so Alibaba.
0: Well, Julian, thanks again for being a repeat guest on our show. As I said, the last episode was phenomenal and definitely the uh The numbers proved it and certainly we're going to top those with this episode so thanks for being on the show
2: well thanks thanks for having me again guys it was uh it was it's always a real real treat and i'm looking forward to uh to season two and all the great guests that you'll be uh bringing on next year
0: yeah that's great well ali that concludes our first season we have done 32 episodes of Shanghai shanghaijan and we will be taking a short break And that will bring us into season two, which will start after the new year. And for everyone, thanks for joining us on today's episode. Join us next season for another exciting rounds of shows with great guests and interesting topics. And to all our listeners until then, have a great day and happy holidays wherever you are.